everyone. My name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of what we like to call Make Ours Marvel Mailbag. And this is, I think, our fourth time to dive into your missives and correspondence and heartfelt emails and just to see what you think about what we think about these stories. Has it been four times already? That's probably true. Yeah, this is the fourth time. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. um, We meant to get another one out in pretty short order after the last one, and just stuff's been happening. So it's not quite a whole quarter year like we were doing, but it's it's a couple months. That's okay, though. Here we are. Yeah, it's like, I love these letters. It's really great. But at the same time, the mailbag seems to be the one we push back if there's ever any scheduling conflict with with anything. Because I guess we're of the attitude we can do it whenever. Yeah, we... Right. We want to keep our regular episodes nicely padded out as far as, you know, production schedule goes. And then there's always the the not comic specials that we like to do with our guests. And so those had to be set on specific dates. And so I was just like, okay, well, we'll do our mailbag next time and the next time. But anyways, here we are. Uh, We're going to focus mainly on emails today, although I did get one question today. I was just going to throw it here right at the front. Okay. So James Hickson who is uh, the host of the Tomb of Ideas podcast, uh, which is a Marvel uh, 1970s Marvel horror podcast. He texted me today. He said, why didn't y'all mention the President Kennedy assassination? Huh? For what? I don't know. JFK died. He died in a book we were covering? Well, that, 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 that was kind of my response. Like, we went past the point in time when he died. Oh. And I feel like we probably have mentioned it in passing. But, um... But if we it's, haven't, it's weird because usually when a big event happens, comic books like reflect that a little bit in some form or another. But uh, I don't think they did that I can think of. I know we mentioned his impending death whenever he showed up in a comic. Right. But no but. one. Yeah. Ah, no, we don't really poke our head out and look around at history much with these books anyway. Maybe we should once in a while just to see what's going on out there. I figure if a story inspires it, if we're reading something, we think, oh, then maybe we can look something up. Otherwise, you know. We're here to talk yeah. about comics. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we have done that. I, sometimes I read something and think, okay, this must be coming from something. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we skipped the old, uh, one of the biggest things to ever happen to us. Right. Oh, well. That's, that's Marvel's okay. fault. Yeah, I know. They didn't say anything. I mean, they didn't DC say anything. did a whole homage to them. Oh, did they really? Darn. Yep. Marvel, um, Marvel dropped the ball. Yeah, well, I, I say homage. Uh, John F. Kennedy appeared in several... Superman comics, mm-hmm. including one that was let, set to go on stands right after he died. Oops. And so they held it. That's and they didn't release kind of, it until after he after they got it clearance from his family. That's kind of interesting because I always associate DC with just making up their presidents. Um, until Ronald Reagan. No, actually, Bill Clinton was the last real president to show up in, in uh, comics. He showed up at the death of Superman. Oh, did he? Okay. I thought that was more of a Marvel thing to do, but maybe DC's kind of like back and forth on that. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of kind of anyway. weird. But anyways, yep. so our first email, Who do you, uh, how do you want to start? Do you want to start or should I start? Uh, go ahead. John Morrissey, right? Right. You'll have to make sure we have the right ones as we go along. This one's called Two Questions to Ponder. Oh, that's not what I have. Questions. What do you have? I have Ha, Never Mind. I have that one next. Oh, okay. So I'm missing that one. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. Well, hello, men. Wow. 
Hello, John. Off to a good start. Right? Well, I am listening to episode 26 and still loving every minute of your show. In this episode, you covered Tales to Astonish 47 featuring Music to Scream By. That was the uh, the the jazz one. Uh-huh. With Ant-Man and, and Wasp. S- right. The Sad Death of Kor, the ant otherwise known as Dave. <laughs> Long live Dave. A- yeah, poor Dave. There's a coloring error that you may have missed. You didn't mention it, but that doesn't mean you missed it. In the panel one of page nine, Ant-Man and the Wasp lie unconscious after hearing Trago's hypnotic music through their radio. Luckily, right before falling into unconsciousness, Ant-Man is able to summon the trusty Kor. Kor arrives with a host of ant associates that carry Ant-Man and the Wasp away in panel four. The caption box for this panel reads, and they carry the helpful ant-sized humans away. Trouble is, upon viewing the panel... Only the unconscious form of Ant-Man is seen resting on the backs of several walking ants. I guess Wasp is off panel, but no, she's there on the right, but the colorist missed her. Mm. I'm looking at that right now. That's totally true, at least on my copy. Yeah, it says it's true in the original issue, which I own, as well as in the faithfully restored Marvel Masterworks copy that is reproduced on Marvel Unlimited. Look closely at panel four using the panel-by-panel view of Marvel Unlimited helps and you'll clearly see the wasp's unconscious form lying upon the group of ants to Ant-Man's left. Huh. I wonder if they uh, fixed that for the digital. I don't really read the digitals, so I don't know what they look like. Uh, he said on Marvel Unlimited, it's still the original coloring. Hmm. I do not know about comiXology. I could pull out my comiXology and check real quick. It's pretty camouflaged. I wonder if, even when they're fixing it, if they would notice to fix it. Right. But, uh, yeah, she does just disappear. So that's kind of crazy. What issue number was that? That is issue 47, Tales to Astonish, page um, 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 9. Okay, there's 47. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay, in comiXology, oh, look, she looks like an ant. Yep, so they didn't fix yep. it. <clears throat> they did not fix it on comiXology either. Okay, uh, how funny. interesting. We'll fix it. I don't anyway, know how, this, but we'll fix it. He goes it. on to say, uh, this observation of faithful coloring of reprints brings up my first question to Potter because it's about coloring. Both of my questions are rhetorical because I assume you don't know the answer. Ha ha ha. Joke's on you. Maybe we do know the answer. Of course we know the answer. We know everything. But we listeners would enjoy your speculations. Given that Marvel's printer seems to have no problem with various shades of the color brown, see the thug's suit on page two, Janet's dress on pages three and four, the thatched hut and dirt floor on page six, etc., why is it that they still color African Americans gray? See the last panel on page 9, every image of Gabe and Sergeant Fury, etc. This must be a choice because they have no trouble using various browns when needed. Why would they make this choice? Because they're racist. (laughs) Well, yes, inherently and systemically, it's 1960s. So yes, they are very much racist. But are they meaning to be racist in this case? That's a good question. It's interesting because... Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't even know how that would be racist per se. It's just wrong kind of. Like right. it's not it's not really a stereotype to portray black males or females as gray. So usually the stereotype is to paint them very 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 black, you know, like straight up black. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Um So yeah, it is kind of weird. I don't really get it. I don't know like did they just have a a palette set of colors that work from and like here's the various white man flesh colors and here's the you know black man flesh colors and the asian flesh colors and they just sampled from that or i don't know i don't get why 
That is kind of odd. It, it does strike me as weird when every, every time I see it, like it just looks wrong. We basically have seen three flesh colors so far in comics. Now, you know, gra- the, his point is granted. They can definitely do a variety of browns. Mm-hmm. But at this point, the color ver- variability is still relatively limited. They have like, you know, two dozen colors they can use or three dozen colors, not millions of colors like you could do with, with digital. Um, so, you know, that being said, we've seen three flesh tones. We've seen Caucasian pinkish. We've seen the very pale yellow that's sometimes used with the Asian characters. And we've seen that charcoal gray that is used for African and African-American characters. Um, and I don't know why, but it is true that they, that they, I don't know. I'm trying to think back, like, cause you know, I used to want to be a comic book artist. So I used to eat up any and all information involving how to create a comic book, which wasn't mm-hmm. a lot before the internet, but you had some stuff. And I seem to recall like coloring wise, and I never really dabbled in that, but the job was someone would color and then it was somebody else's job maybe to match that color to the print's abilities or something like that. So it wasn't just like a straight up, like, you know, you scan this guy's colors into the system right. and, and hit print. You had to like translate that to the printer. So maybe they're getting lost in translation. Or maybe something. it's a printer company uh, thing. Um, I was thinking about, you know, the history of depictions of African Americans in comics. And you definitely had brown skin tones in the 40s. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there were the awful, horrible pastiche colorings of like pure black mixed with cartoonish features. Mm-hmm. But like the young allies character was, uh, was colored with brown skin tones and we will get to brown skin tones before we get to Robbie Robertson uh, in amazing Spider-Man. By the time we get there, they've figured this out when this happens. I don't know. Okay. Apparently after 1964 or whenever this book was, they're okay. still doing it though. Cause even yes. Gabe and, and Nick Fury still looks like that. Right, right. So that's something we're going to watch out for. When will Gabe be colored brown instead of gray? I don't know. So to answer your question, we really don't know. We lied. <laughs> My second also rhetorical question to ponder is a lot shorter. <laughs> Actually, the paragraph that you've written it is a lot longer, but maybe our answer will be shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Given that the cast of creators hasn't changed much during this first exciting year of Marvel Comics... Why do you think the quality of the issues produced varies so much? I'm mostly talking about the plot and or scripting, because the artwork is always acceptable to excellent, and your reviews show that you agree. Is it that Stan tossed his name on every issue, even those he had nothing to do with? Like, only his plots, only his actual plots were good? Is it that Stan, like DiMaggio, sometimes struck out? Is it that some issues were rushed away more than others? Is it that some titles were the preferred babies of one of the creators, as you speculate about FF and Sergeant Fury for Kirby? If you count the creators during this first year, there are only about a dozen of them mixed and matched in each issue, so shouldn't most of the issues be of average quality? It seems to me that the variance in quality is much greater than the variance in creators. If you don't agree, let me know, but if you do agree, please speculate on why you think this might be so. Uh, Well, frequency is probably a big part of it. I mean, it's one thing to hit like, you know, to do the baseball analogy, hit it out of the park today, but you got to do this every month. Um, probably burn out on ideas. And we don't we don't know how much Stan influenced plots or not. There's a lot of either people thinking he did or there's a lot of negative people thinking – well, not negative people, but negative thoughts that, uh, you know, he didn't. So maybe it was based on whoever was drawing at the time and some guys 
drew better stories for him to to deal with than others. But yeah, I think it's just really hard to come out with something amazing every month, and he's doing it with you know however many titles we're covering right now. Yeah, the the credits. I think Stanley is always there, either yeah. as the writer or as the plotter, with maybe a few exceptions. So he's either doing he's having the conversation with the artist at first and the artist goes off and draws the story and then either Stan Lee or somebody, you know, working for Stan Lee comes and actually does the writing. Um, but that still means that, you know, Jack Kirby is giving us some really, you know, crap, strange tales issues or, you know, that Don Heck is giving us really bizarre Iron Man stories, just, you know, stuff like that happens. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's just the frustration of commercial art where you just got to crank stuff out because that's what the job is. And whether it's good or not, doesn't really matter so much as just getting mm-hmm. it on the page and getting it out the door. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're assuming they cared as much as we care. Right. Which, you know, it was a job for them. And it was, you know, for some of them, it was like the end of the job. Like, right. They've yeah. been doing this for 20 years and oh my God, will it please stop? And it wasn't cool still. I mean, Stan ultimately makes it cool, but for a lot of people, it was like the job you don't talk about because you're not making it where you really want to make it. Right. Um, I also think, and here we go back to production. There's like the script way of writing a comic book where you can go as detailed as you can in like page one, panel one. Right. Mm-hmm. And here's what the dialogue is. So it's more like a movie script. And then what they call literally the Marvel method, which is Stan writes, you know, Thor's going to fight Mr. Hyde and Cobra. Um, they have a time machine gun that they use to find out his identity. You know, make that happen. And then the guy draws that out. And then someone, either Stan or somebody else, comes back in and tries to make sense of it enough to do dialogue with it. So, you know, I see like that method being less control freaky. And you don't really know where where the, you know, train goes off the, the tracks, right? Because maybe it doesn't, maybe, maybe the guy who was drawing it didn't translate it the way the guy who wrote up the paragraphs thought. And maybe the guy that's dialoguing it is not the same guy who wrote the paragraphs and <laughs> Right. It just gets slapped together. And once the art comes in, maybe it does or does not inspire the imagination of whoever's writing the script. Like, I feel like a lot of our best scripting comes out of stuff that's already dynamic Uh art-wise. Spider-Man comics often have really fantastic scripts, but there's always a lot of emotion drawn into the panels, so it's kind of hard not to. Um, Same thing with Fantastic Four. There's so much drama and action that writing a bombastic but engaging script is, you know, very common. No, not all, not always. Sometimes we have some snoozers, but maybe there's a certain amount of inspiration that happens or doesn't happen when the art comes in for the writer. We've seen countless examples in our coverage so far of like panels where the caption doesn't quite match what's going on necessarily, or mm-hmm. or maybe a caption that's really over explaining something that's happening because they're trying to reorient the story. And the and the picture isn't matching up. Like the big biggest grievance I can think of is when you know Namor gets his people back in one panel on Avengers three, I think. Right. Um, yeah, because it's like nobody drew that scene, so now we just have to make a caption and write that that scene happened. So, yeah. So suddenly he's found some people. So yeah, sometimes that just doesn't gel. So it, it, the, you've posed some interesting questions here, John, and I would love to pick somebody's brain who was actually working in the bullpen at the time. Sadly, there are very, very few of those left. I'm honestly not sure of any of the names we've said on the show so far. If any of them are still surviving, I don't know. 
I think uh, we're going to have to wait till we get to like the John Romita era and then interview him. Yeah. Yeah, that should be easy. And he closes by saying, only if you want to and only if you have the airtime. Mostly what I really want is to listen to your show, at least until The Amazing Spider-Man 300. Thanks for everything, John. <sighs> 300? Let's just get to 30. <laughs> what, happened to, what happens in 300? Don't spoil it. Okay. Um, 300 is a pretty important issue. Do you want to know what happens in 300? Sure. Uh, that's Venom's first big story. Oh, well, gee, that's barely start with Spider-Man then. We have to go past that. <laughs> um, I'd love to get to 30 because that's um, that's in a big transition era. There are actually some first appearances in 30 that are pretty cool. Uh, my son has recently read, I think, 27, so he's almost to 30. Uh, and I'm kind of excited for him to get there. But also 30, it's just, you know, there's that's a certain chunk of time that we've done that would feel feel kind of good. I'd love to get through the 60s. That's my mini goal right now. That's a long way still, though. Mm-hmm. That's like five more years, but hey, whatever. Um, so next, I have sure. I have Lord Ha Ha. Is that what you have? No, I have Ha Nevermind. Yeah, John Morrissey, Ha Nevermind. Okay, so this is where he backtracks on the things we just covered, probably. Let me see. How embarrassing. <laughs> How embarrassing. I just sent a long email with two questions for you to ponder. One concerned the variation in quality of the comic published during Marvel's first year. I asked you for the guesses about why this might have occurred, but then you just answered that question during the episode that I was listening to. Oh, man. So we just answered it twice. If I had waited five minutes to write you, then I would have saved myself and you trouble. Oh, well. So there you go. Everybody listen to episode 26. And you can decide if our answer tonight, our answer on this recording or episode 26 is more to your liking. Pick and choose. Right. Okay. Well, our next email is from Professor Allen. Is that the one you have? Yep. Lord Ha Ha. Episode 34, Sergeant Fury and Lord Ha Ha. Now, a couple people pointed this out, but Professor Allen, I think, was the first. And Professor Allen is, of course, uh, Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He and his um, uh, family member, what's their name? M, I believe they do several podcasts over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, such as Shortbox Showcase. Um, they do one, I forget what it's called, but it's analyzing uh, how faith is treated in comics and the quarter, the, the quarter bin. Mm-hmm. Something about the quarter bin. He has a, a show that he talks about comics that he only paid a quarter for. Ah, so, the good old days. Yeah. Well, no, still, like he'll he'll go to quarter bins and in, in, in um, shops nowadays. Oh, wow! But anyways, he says Michael and John, the character of Lord Haha and Sergeant Fury was indeed based on a real person, sort of a British version of the Japanese protagonist Tokyo. Ro- I'm sorry, propagandist Tokyo Rose. From a page on a BBC website, I found this: William Joyce, aka Lord Haha, was a notorious broadcaster of Nazi propaganda to the UK during World War II. His announcement, Germany calling, Germany calling, was a familiar sound across the airwaves, introducing threats and misinformation that he broadcast from his Hamburg base. In 1945, Joyce was captured and returned to Britain, where he was later hanged for treason. Well, Wow. Cool. I sensed that he was, but I couldn't figure out. So I'm glad that that Pamela Hawley's brother was not hanged for treason. (laughs) No, he just got blowed up, right? Yeah, he just got shot. (laughs) No, he got shot down by his own people. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, I did not know that Ha Ha was based on a real person. I've read that issue a few times, and I'd never bothered to look up the idea of him being based on a real person. But I wouldn't be able to look it up anyway because, you know, the name, they changed the name. uh, Well, see, that I did look it up, and I I didn't find that information. It just seemed like he was, but I don't, you know, I found nothing to support that, but. 
There you go. I like how they bring in, you know, actual figures of history occasionally on in that book. Mm-hmm. We had the Desert Fox and we've had this guy. I think there's one other. Well, I mean, the advantage of having a period piece book is you know what happened. Yeah. So yeah. you can play with that a little bit. He says, I continue to enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. Professor Rowlin, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Dorkness to Light. That's the faith-based one. Not okay. faith-based, but the one that analyzes faith's treatment in comics. Okay. So, um, yeah, he's a, he's a podcaster that I've, I've listened to off and on for years. Long time respect. Very, very excited that he's enjoying the show. So thank you for your support and your listening, Professor Allen, and I um, uh, hope you continue to enjoy. Okay, what you got next? I'm all caught up. Me too. Okay. So that's Ooh. the end of the emails. That's a bit, yeah, that's it. Uh, John Morrissey <laughs> writes, Gentlemen, good news and bad news. I'm all caught up with your terrific podcast. That's the good news because I can comment in real time even though you're recording 10 episodes re- ahead. You got that right, buddy. The bad news is that I don't have 50 new episodes at my disposal anymore. Oh, well, they say that patience is a virtue. Um, if you write to us 16 more times, we're going to give you advanced copies. <laughs> um some comments on the last few episodes. First, John, I agree with you completely. Every time Michael says, well, in the Garfield movie, I was not thinking about Spider-Man. <laughs> I'm not which, alone. <laughs> which is funny because you guys like the Garfield movie. So why aren't you thinking about Spider-Man? Anyway. I don't know because I think of Andrew Garfield, but you say Garfield <laughs> and I don't think of Andrew Garfield. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird way to word it because there is a Garfield movie. Um, it's like I was um, – I was watching X2 with Keenan and Kitty Pride shows up once or twice and he makes a, you know, gay pride joke. And I was like, okay, yeah, because, you know, Kitty's queer. But at the same time, when I hear Kitty Pride, I don't think gay pride, but that's where his yeah. brain went. Right. Second, in your review of the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire, I was shocked that neither of you mentioned his organic webbing. As a Spidey fan since the late 60s, that horrified me, although I still love the movie. How do you guys feel about that? I thought we did, but we didn't. Maybe I just thought about mentioning it, and then we never got to it. Yeah, it was definitely one of those th- on my list of things to talk about. We just didn't ever actually say it. I don't know if I missed it on my list or what. What are your thoughts on organic webbing? I think it's blah. I don't like it. it makes him creepy, and it takes away from his geniusness. That's part of mm-hmm. his character. Um, I don't think it's so horrible as the internet made it i remember that being a big blow up on the internet um and i didn't care that much you know i guess it's a a quicker way to get to that stuff without having to i guess if you know if you have this rule that you only have you only try and you know suspend the audience disbeliefs once then throwing in web shooters might add to that so i could see that logic you know get past the radioactive spider and everything else is spider-man but yeah i don't like it i'd rather have web shooters well, one thing that comics fandom has proven over and over and over again is that many, many people don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, not that just too. comics fandom. It's a lot of fandoms. That too. So I think it goes without saying that whichever had been done in 1962, that is the one we would want it to be forever. Of course. Now, the idea of organic webbing came up in the conversations in the 60s. Stanley talks about how, you know, the idea of organic webbing did come up, but, you know, it wouldn't be coming out of his hands. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So, <laughs> I mean, not to get too graphic, but that is not where spider webs come out of. So, on right. spiders. So, you know, spiders, you know, they, 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 they web out of their butt, but they do grab it with their forward, you know, manipulating legs and that's they use that to spin their webs and stuff so it's 
I don't know. I personally, organic webbing never even occurred to me to be bothered by it. I just, it's what they did in the movies. I thought, oh, okay. And it went along. It is one of, him making the web shooters is definitely one of the gimmies of Spider-Man. Like, yeah. Peter Parker is sitting around with his high school science class, and he invents uh, a pump system that squirts out a liquid that becomes solid almost upon contact with air Mm -hmm. and it's adhesive Mm -hmm. and it's tensile strength is there. I mean, the web shooters are a magic of the story that you have to accept. And they decided, well, maybe instead of that, maybe we'll just, you know, make him have spinnerets. So I remember two, the two big things about that movie before the movie came out, of course, because let's judge everything that way is he, he, they're not making him smart enough to have a web shooter. And at the same time, out of the other side of the mouth was, no kid could ever come up with that costume. So right. it's like, he's a, not genius enough, but he's also too smart. And so it was just like, whatever, just go to the movie and like it or don't like it. Right. I ultimately like the movie. I like that Far From Home addressed that particular thing of the homemade costume mm-hmm. by making his homemade costume just a little bit crap. And then I he mean, gets the... The movie costume from Tony Stark? Toby's was crap, too, when it started. He just tried harder the second time. Right. <laughs> and there are, there are people at conventions that have duplicated that costume. So it's it's apparently doable to do in your house. Uh, anyway. Well, apparently there's a lot of really amazing costume that's doable in your house. Because, uh-huh. I mean, cosplay is yeah. like, it's, like it's, its own art form. Exactly. I love, love cosplay. Like just looking at all the photos of people, to, uh, it's my it's my jam. I know. I know. I've I just never done it. My daughter just showed me um, this one woman who she wears a hijab, mm-hmm. and she always incorporates different colors of hijabs into her cosplay. Oh. So she has all of these different costume designs, and then the hijab usually takes the effect of the hair of the character. Okay. So. Um, at first, I didn't realize it was a hijab. She was dressed up as a, a cartoon character. And, you know, cartoon hair, drawn hair, kind of looks like just a sheet with a few lines on it. That's just the way people draw hair. It's just like a sheet hanging down off your head, and there's some lines to make it look like hair. So yeah. I thought maybe that's what she was going for. It's like, oh, it's a cartoon hair. So it's not actually hair. But then I was like, oh, no, that's supposed to be a piece of cloth. She wears hijabs. Anyways, she's amazing. Her makeup is off the chain insanely good and i can't remember her name or i would i would advertise her right now i was trying to look at it while i was talking about her and i can't find where she is on my twitter we'll post it when we find it okay and then people will be like what are you posting this for and then they'll hear this and go oh that's why he posted that okay yeah you know i actually yeah when you hear this go look in the make guards marvel twitter from like around february 15th or 16th because i'm going to totally share her okay stuff all right third as for the Yancey Street Gang, I agree that they are almost always portrayed as a band of teenage street toughs who have been badgering poor Ben since he lived there as a kid. FYI, Stan Lee based this street name on the real Delancey Street on the lower east side of Manhattan where he and Kirby grew up and where Kirby roamed the street as part of the gang in his youth. I did not know that. That's so cool. Um also, Lower East Side is where Captain America used to be from until they decided to just make him straight up Brooklyn. Um, of note is the horrible, in my opinion, retcon that was created by dot, 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 John Byrne, I think. He retconned that there was no Yancey Street gang 
and that all the pranks over the years were pulled on Ben by Johnny, who blamed and framed the fictitious Yancey Street Gang. Given that they're often seen running along rooftops after pelting the thing with water balloons, this attempt at a retcon, retcon should be ignored. I think I remember that, but vaguely. I'm going to ignore a lot of what this artist does because I don't like him. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, last, I'll use my PhD in biology to give you a brief tutorial. Wow. Okay. Yes. Actually, can I, I'm, I'm going to pause it for one second. I'm sorry. I seem to remember in Civil War uh-huh. that there are some Yancey Streeters who meet with Ben. Okay. So if that was a retcon that was done in the 80s, I think they undid it later. Well, we've seen a Yancey Streeter in the stuff we've done, so they do exist. They're real. real. We could just say maybe Johnny was responsible for some of them, but not all of them. Anyway, last, I'll use my PhD in biology to give you a brief tutorial. Or or maybe that Johnny was lying and was pulling one over on Ben, saying that he was responsible for the Yancey Street gang, just to razz him up. That could be, too. I guess we should have to read it first to see... Yeah, the, the the facts on that. Um, I'm not going to read that sentence again. Yes, whales, dolphins, and other <sighs> cetaceans. Cetaceans. Thank you. Do share a common ancestor with terrestrial hoofed animals, the ungulates. Sure, but there has long been a disagreement about which branch of hoofed mammals is more closely related to them: the even-toed blah blah blahs, such as deer. Or the odd toes, such as horses and rhinos. Sadly, most of the best fossil evidence has been found in Pakistan and other regions of the Middle East, and it's not too safe to go on a fossil hunt in those areas these days. Nevertheless, the most recent molecular evidence points to a shared common ancestor with hippos, and I have no idea what this paragraph's about. Um, Did we talk about this? I don't remember the. Con- I do feel like we probably talked about it in the context of the. Um, the Fantastic Four annual. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I, maybe I it's... I know we made comments about, like, a really large animal in the water being related to cattle. Okay. Well, yeah. The way the... way the Because the, whenever I was young and I learned about the idea of evolving species and that life came from the water, my assumption was that once life forms made it up onto land, we just kind of stayed here and kept on evolving. But actually, there was, a, there was a regression. So cattle and other four-legged animals on land, um, some of their ancestry returned to the water and continued to evolve. And whales and dolphins and other cetaceans actually evolved from an an- a common ancestor with cattle and rhinos, that sort of thing. Right. I just can't remember how that's related to any of the comic books we've read, but... Something about Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yeah, okay. (laughs) Sure, Spider-Horse guy. Um, As for Namor being Marvel's first mutant, I wouldn't think too much about that in real terms because, frankly, we're all mutants. A mutation is simply an error in DNA replication. So if a person copies their DNA when making sperm or eggs, they should make an exact copy. Example, ATCGG. But if they make an error, ATCGT then that is a mutation that could end up in their, ch- in their child. Mutations are pretty common, and we humans possess on average 38 mutations that do not occur in our parents. Speak for yourself. Sadly, none of these mutations have given anyone superpower- superpowers to date. Hence, as for Namor, he undoubtedly possesses a number of mutations, that he also, but he also possesses Marvel's mutant gene, and that's why he is so powerful. Okay, class dismissed. Eh. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, yeah, because... No, I don't think... I mean, yeah, okay, fine. We all have mutations. But there's a difference between that and this mutant gene that's specifically, you know, a Marvel invention. Right. And I think that Marvel had to invent the X gene for this very reason to distinguish from the more common evolutionary mutations. Right. And for I what think, it's worth, yeah. I do have an identified mutation in my daughter. Okay. Her upper jaw is one tooth short. She's missing one of her incisors. And her skull doesn't have a gap where it should be. She just grew in a perfectly normal looking set of one fewer teeth. I have I only had two wisdom teeth. Is that a mutation? I don't know. Could could be. Um that means I'm fifty percent more likely to survive. <laughs> uh, we made it this far. <laughs> well I mean they're all out now, so because we don't let that naturally kill us anymore. Okay, now please stop reading emails and please go record more episodes. Well, we're kind of doing that, but we're also reading emails to do it. So weird. Is your next one the softener? Yes, it is. Okay. I should say thank you very much for the emails, John. Um, yes, yes. I, I love that you have a PhD in biology because I'm fascinated by biology, but I don't think I have the um, the database in my brain lends itself to different kinds of topics. I'll just say that. All right. Episode 33, the softener from Tim Price. Ooh, Tim Price wrote us uh, an iTunes review. Don't let me forget to read that before we go. Okay. Whew. Plenty of good things happened this episode. FF. I enjoyed listening to you guys reminisce about Secret Wars. I read it just last year as part of following the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, which is excellent, by the way. And since you got the story straight by the end, you managed to avoid any Tim-splating from me. It's a problem I have. Sigh. Could the Molecule Man be defeated by someone who can control atoms or protons or electrons? Wait, Electro hasn't debuted yet. Hmm. Yes, he has. Now he has. Now he has. Amazing Spider-Man, John, I had the exact same expectations as a kid. One, Florida (laughs) is all swamps. (laughs) For sure, of course. Two, high school chemistry is hella useful. (laughs) And three, Lizard is the skinny, scaly Hulk with a tail. He's even green with the torn purple pants. Wow. I never thought of that part. Realizing I didn't know how to create web fluid and web shooters dashed my dream of growing up to be Spider-Man. By comparison, getting bitten by a radioactive spider, that part's easy. Yeah, it just unfortunately probably won't have a very good result for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tales of Suspense, Iron Man, you're so right, an authentic name wouldn't be the Melter. His power is more like the Softener. (laughs) 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 He is... He is Dowdy, the metal softener. <laughs> uh, that's good. Oh, my gosh. He also says, I'm so, so sorry. Until next time. Um, I didn't want to talk about his secret war stuff because I remember we were trying to get straight the whole history of the Molecule Man mm-hmm. between here and Secret Wars. Yeah, yeah. So um, I do keep meaning to listen to that Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. They... They started out with Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. They covered all those issues. They went into Secret Wars 2 and covered every single crossover. And they're just now wrapping that up. That so I'm not sure big. if his Right. That was a really long project. Um, when my Avengers read-through goes through that era, I'm definitely picking that up and listening to it. I don't know what their plan is next, if they're going to go on to the more recent Secret Wars, or if they're <laughs> even going to consider Nick Fury's Secret Wars series. I don't know. I think, well, I mean, it's up to them, but like, those are just two completely different kinds of Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. One is so much more spectacular and amazing than, you know, the other. But anyway, they can do what they want. Yeah, uh, Secret Wars is one of those things that 
the Nick Fury series has the name in common, and that's it. That is it. No but bueno. But there was that, no um, that recent Secret Wars story that like rewrote history for Marvel. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's probably a big one, huh? Uh, is the next one Phantom Menace? Uh, yes. This is for our Star Wars podcast. Hello, gentlemen. Also, John Morrissey. Sorry. Thanks again for another terrific episode. Michael, your recaps are always so funny. Thank you. That's because I can't remember what happened. And thanks for pointing out that Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, number 50, was the first cliffhanger issue in the Marvel Universe. That's a useful tidbit for trivia games. Yay. If only uh, Trivial Pursuit was that awesome. All right. <laughs> it's basically a game where I sit there waiting to say, I don't know. All right. And in terms of milestone issues... Tales to Astonish 50 suggests another for me that hasn't occurred yet. Throughout most of Marvel's history, whenever a newspaper story, or at least its headline, appears in an issue, the newspaper of choice, of course, is the Daily Bugle. But Stan hasn't made that decision yet. After 100 issues, congratulations, by the way. Yay! In Tales to Astonish 50, Hank Pym is reading about the human top in the Star Bulletin on page 3. More significantly, on page 11, the human top is seemingly reading every paper in town because they are all praising his successful heist including the Star Bulletin, the Daily Chronicle, and the Morning Bugle. But he is not reading the Daily Bugle. Hence, my rhetorical question, when does Stan first decide that everyone in the Marvel Universe reads JJJ's Daily Bugle? Will that happen in the next 10 issues, in another 100 issues, or not for another 1,000 issues? I don't remember, so that's something else to watch for. Thanks again for the education and the entertainment. Yeah, I don't think that's happened yet. Unless we just missed it. I don't think it's happened yet either. Um, uh, I know uh, we've, we've talked about how he's got two mags, and I've always wondered like what the difference was between the two. And we've also talked about whether his Daily Bugle is just considered a rag or if it's legit news. And they kind of waffle back and forth and all that. So it doesn't really feel like it's been solidified yet. Right. And we're still at this point where the Marvel Universe still feels very like indiscreet chunks like mm-hmm. the fantastic four over there spider-man's over here i don't know when we're going to start feeling like characters are just free to appear whenever in each other's books mm-hmm. um like in the 1970s when ms marvel debuts J. jonah jameson is a supporting character mm-hmm. and for a very short time peter and mary jane were supporting characters the initial concept for ms marvel for anyone who doesn't know was that she worked for a new magazine at now publications called women magazine and Peter and MJ in their civilian identities were going to be supporting cast for her. They were going to be friends. They were going to be in the book. That's awesome. That yeah, didn't last very long, <laughs> but, um, but by that time, you know, you have this idea that people can just kind of appear in other people's books. Uh-huh. I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, right now we're starting to get pretty crossover heavy. So they're starting to, I feel like, they've suddenly realized that crossovers are making money and this idea that everybody's living in the same world is fun. So maybe soon we will have to watch for it. Yeah. Okay. Was that the end of that one? That was the end of that one. Uh, Next one is in between issue coverage. Yep. All right. This is from Angus Livingston. Hello, Angus. We, uh, we talk occasionally on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. Hi guys. I wanted to tag up on a comment you guys made in an early episode of the show. You had reached out and said you were looking to avoid spoilers for ongoing plot lines, but did say that we could reach out to you guys for continuity-related character development if we had information to share. I was wondering if that relates to certain series like Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and if you guys are wanting pertinent information regarding important events detailed there. Yes. I say yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I don't really anything, care about spoilers, anything. honestly. The only time we care about spoilers is when John is sad that I didn't know something that he tells me about because he wanted to see <laughs> me be upset about it in real time. But right. uh, that's about it. I don't, you know. I was successful in one of those. When we talked about X-Men 4 uh-huh. and you didn't know that Xavier was totally faking and was going to reveal it in X-Men 5, mm-hmm. and I didn't say anything. I was so proud of myself. Yeah, see, there you go. Um, but yeah, really anything that like helps to flesh out the continuity, any retcons that have been put in for any of the events we talk about, like, for example, I know that the Avengers four with Captain America has been revisited so many times. Uh-huh. I don't really know how much of that was pertinent to our conversation, but anything that you feel like is pertinent, you want to share. Sure. Write us up. Yeah. Um, Angus goes on to say, additionally, I know you guys are focused mainly on the comics, but is there an interest in covering Marvel's prose novels? I'm actually in the mid- um, When do those start, though? Yeah, I think the first ones are in the later 60s. Oh, really? That early? Okay. The Avengers Battle of the Earth Wrecker has the uh, Goliath, Quicksilver, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch team on it. Well, maybe that could be a new, uh, new type of special for us, because I certainly don't think I could bust that out in a week, because I'm a kind of a slow reader about novels especially yeah. but maybe we could throw those aside and just like every once in a while tackle a book just for heck the heck of it yeah i, th- I think it'd be good to to do those sort of a- around the time they come out mm-hmm. i know that at least one of them is actually in continuity because it get, it it gets referenced by spider-man oh wow. like spider-man t- uh says something and asterisk see the recent book i don't know mayhem in manhattan or something okay well, we'll have to see how you know thick they are and what kind of font size it is as to whether we can bust it out fast enough. Angus goes on to say, I'm actually in the middle of reading a collection of short stories called Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Not the comic series written by Kurt Busiek, but it does have some contributions from him. There have been some neat stories that probably aren't considered canon anymore, but which fit very nicely. One specific story actually fulfills Michael's wish for Ant-Man to have been integrated into the early Marvel Universe as a pre-Wasp Ant-Man teams up with Spidey to battle Egghead. Wow. That's fun. Yeah. Anyway, I won't write an essay like last time. Keep up the fantastic, astonishing, incredible, amazing, strange, and avenging work. The show really is a highlight of my week. Till next time, true believers, Angus Livingston. Thank you, Angus. Yes, very cool. DC version? Yes. Okay, Marcelo uh, 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 Quen- Kensler? Quensler? Kensler? Quensler wrote. This is a good one. Easy one. Okay. Hey, just wondering if you guys knew of a podcast that does the same for DC Comics, starting really early and going month to month. Thanks for any help. And I think maybe we answered him, hopefully, already on by email or something. But my answer was not really. Yeah. Um, there are some that cover particular eras. Um, I mean, I did one called Golden Age Superman back in the day that is currently unavailable, but I'm hoping to get, you know, uploaded again sometime soon um, that covered the first couple years of Superman. Um, you had Legends of the Batman once upon a time mm-hmm. um, from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast does the Superman era of the 80s and 90s. Well, let's face it. If you like Superman and that's what you're going for, I think pretty much every era is being covered or has been covered. To some extent. By, to some extent. So Superman's pretty good. Whether someone has started with like action comics and gone through everything, I don't think that's ever happened. Um, and it would be it yeah. would be kind of difficult yeah. to, to assemble a project like that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, DC did not emphasize the ongoing narrative feel to their stories. 
until until after the point that we are in in history. Like, and, the, and there was no real starting point to that. Yeah. So you have Superman stories and Batman stories in the 40s and Wonder Woman and Flash and all those others. And they're just stories. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say they're bad. No. It's just not that there's there's not really a month-to-month feel of continuity from them. They're just stories. Like, you turn on the TV in 1965, you're going to get an episode of a show that has nothing to do with the episode before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but, and DC, you know, while credited as being, like, the origin of the Silver Age and the Golden Age, um, they don't have that, like, FF number one catalyst that, that starts their quote-unquote universe. So, right. I don't know I mean, where you, you could, would start. Even something as simple as Action Comics number one isn't really the starting point no. because some of their characters who stuck around started earlier than that. Yeah. And that's not even mentioning all of the characters who were initially published by other companies that were later bought by DC and integrated into the universe, like Plastic Man and the Carlton characters, like Blue Beetle and other stuff like that. So, Marcella, what we're saying is go ahead and start your Make Yours DC podcast. But you have to mm-hmm. start with new fun comics number one. <laughs> and good, oh, good oh. luck finding a scan of that. I'm glad you mentioned that because there is it's it's a finite series, not an ongoing series, but there is a series out there that covers all of the DC published stories before Action Comics number one. Oh, all of the pre-Superman stories. You know, um, you know what would be cool. And I'm not volunteering this. Maybe Mike's Amazing should do this. But if you had like just an index, maybe not even the covers, keep it simple, an index of like every title and issue of comic book, and you clicked on that and you could see if there was a podcast for it that covered it, you know, like a cross reference. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be kind of neat. A comic book podcast database. Yeah. Something like that. That might be interesting. But you mentioned Mike's Amazing World, and he is the one who did that. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which is a website at um, dcindexes.com or mm-hmm. mikesamazingworld.com. Yeah. He put out Mike's Amazing World of DC History. Oh. Where he talked about all the stories that were published in Detective Comics, New Fun Comics, all that other stuff. And he took it in um, not issue by issue, but story by story. So, like, all of the Slam Bradley stuff he kind of covered in a couple of runs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, yeah, that's um, what I'm just wondering if you could piece it together somehow. But that sounds like a lot of Excel spreadsheet work. It sounds like a lot of Excel spreadsheet work. <laughs> John John is salivating as he thinks about it. Okay. Uh, episode 36? Uh, from Tim Price. That's you, right? Go ahead. Yeah. He says, some pretty cool issues this time. My own little thoughts. Johnny Storm dressing up like Spider-Man to trick Sandman. Completely surprised. Totally bonkers. Loved it. Awesome. That was a fun moment. Yeah. I had, oh, um, that was a Dick Ayers drawn Spider-Man story, which I thought was going to be our only Dick Ayers drawn Spider-Man story, uh-huh. but Tales to Astonish 57 is on the horizon, and that's going to have Dick Ayers drawing Spider-Man up against oh, yeah. um, Giant Man. Spoilers. Yep. Spoilers. I had read Doctor Strange's origin reprinted in Marvel Tales. I definitely did not get the whole effect of knowing Mordo in advance, and especially nothing of Strange's adjustment to being a white guy. Very interesting to learn about from you guys. Yeah, I mean, I can't see it any other way, but I think I've also read online people who don't agree with that. So, yeah, I guess it, you could take it. You could decide for yourself, but personally, I just think it's pretty obvious. And honestly, it didn't even occur to me until like reading through either for this show 
or like the last time I read it. Um, and here's some speculation on that. This is just me. We tend to interpret the world through the filter of our own experience. Mm-hmm. And unless there is something that is saying, hey, this is something from outside of your experience, you're probably going to have a sort of default view on things. That's just human nature. So if you're a Caucasian child in the United States of America in 1963, reading the origin story of a, of a magician who apparently lives in New York City, even though there are some physical cues that m- would indicate otherwise, it might just be natural to interpret this as, oh, this is a Caucasian American because that's what I am and that's what I know. Right. We interpret the ancient one as being Asian because it says he's in Asia, right. not because he's depicted as being an Asian. Well, except he was, kind of. Except he was. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Because here's the, just a corollary to that is that if Doctor Strange, the way he was depicted by Steve Ditko in his first issues, if he was a Caucasian man in America, then by the same interpretation of the art, the ancient one is a Caucasian man living in Tibet. Yes, exactly. Because they share the same features. They had the exact same faces. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Different hair color. Right. Um, so anyways, consider uh, Tim Price goes on to say, considering he just made the FF annoyed with each other, sounds like hate monger was the irritant monger. Not as good of a name for branding, I guess. Because all they did was make them annoyed at each other. Yeah, considering his garb, he wasn't really as, you know, evil as that symbol, that symbolic look usually what comes with. Right. I just listened to your older episode on the Iron Man movie as well. Some fun parallels about Pepper and Happy with this episode and the movie one. Good, good. Did you guys ask about Marvel U prisons? I think we talked about that. We did. I'm pretty sure. If not, apologies. But if so, to my knowledge, the first was Rikers Island near Manhattan. Next was the vault in Colorado. Then restored Rikers Maximum Security Prison, but opened an annex, the raft, Maximum Maximum Security Prison, because repeating a word makes it truer. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely don't want to go to Maximum Maximum Security Prison. Is that double plus good? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've said any of those names yet, but... No. They've just had, like, Doc Ock and... Or, you know, all the villains have just been in straight-up prison, as far as I can tell. I feel like we might have gotten the name of the prison that Sandman escaped from, and I can't think of it off the top of my head of what it was. That, um, was that Post Powers, though? Yeah. Yeah, he escaped that. Yeah, he just kind of sanded his way out, didn't he? Right, right. That was weird how Twitter showed me as just recently following you. I hadn't changed since I originally followed you. It must be a twickup. You know, a Twitter hiccup? Yes? No? I'll let myself out. Likely story. (laughs) Happy holidays, guys. Until Franklin Richards dresses as Baby New Year, make ours Marvel. Uh Uh-oh. Does that happen? Well, until we get to Franklin Richards, how about? That'd be good. Yeah. It's not, not, I mean... Yeah, it's a far ways away. I was going to say, it's not too far, but we've got to get the wedding in Fantastic Four Annual 2. We've got to get the announcement of the pregnancy in Fantastic Four Annual 3. And then the, having the baby around the time of Fantastic Four Annual 4. So, Franklin Richards is a ways away. Ways away, it's away. Um, okay, Hide and Seek? or Yes. Hide and Seek by John Morsey. Uh, hello, gents. Thanks for another terrific episode. You're welcome. This time around, I have one comment and one question for you to ponder. I hope it's rhetorical. The comment is, you guys never cease to amaze me with your insight. John in particular, hey, what the hell, seems to be 
preternaturally gifted with the ability to speculate on what must have been happening in the Marvel bullpen at the time that resulted in the comics that we now hold in our hands. For example, in this episode, John speculated that the Human Torch story in Strange Tales 116 was intended by the artist to be punctuated with a Part 2 banner atop page 8, but for some reason Stan changed his mind and replaced that story structure with a verbose caption box. That seems entirely plausible to me, and it's something I never would have noticed. So thanks again for your awesome insight, fellas. Uh, I like being awesome. Yeah. I would really love to verify some of that someday, but I guess there's no real way to do that. Huh? Yeah. Uh, my question also occurred. I think like even if Stan was alive, he'd be like, I don't remember. Um, yeah, because I actually did have one small email correspondence with him once about a Spider-Man history. Uh-huh. And although he gave an answer, it was sort of couched in the, I'm not really sure, but. Yeah. Uh, my question also concerns the evolving structure of the Silver Age Marvel Max. When does the splash page transition once and for all from an from an introductory synopsis of the story, almost serving as a second cover for the issue, to simply serving as the first panel, albeit a full page, of the yarn? Sticking with Strange Tales 116, the Human Torch story opens with a full page first panel as the splash, but the subsequent Doctor Strange tale opens with a synoptic splash that serves as a teaser. When I started reading Marvel Mags in 1971, the synoptic... Am I saying that word right? The synoptic? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It's the word synopsis as a, oh. an adjective. Okay. The synoptic... Sounds like an, a part of the eye or something. The synoptic <laughs> splash was a thing of the past. But when did that transition occur? Yeah, this seems like a carryover, or they're still doing it, from the Golden Age. The Golden Age was all about, like really fancy this is what our story is going to be about and let's have like a 200 word caption telling you how great this magazine is yeah uh, that happened fairly quickly at least in batman comics that happened at least by the time he got his solo title that was happening every issue or every story actually um and they're kind of doing that with these although i don't think they're as in your face as the as the 40s ones were but, and it's weird because sometimes it'll be the shorter story that still uses the splash as a synopsis or as like, like he said, a second cover. I'm just flipping through as we're, as we're doing this, this um, mailbag episode, we're recording the first of our April 1964 comics. Mm-hmm. And I'm just flipping through all of the April uh, comics to see what we've got. And so far I see three of the, of the seven issues that came out in April three stories had synoptic splash pages. Those were Daredevil 2, the Doctor Strange story in Strange Shells 122, and the Amazing Spider-Man 14 story. All of those opened with a splash page that was not part of the story. Okay. So I don't know if so it's we still ever going it. to completely go away. Yeah, we would, it's definitely still around occasionally. Okay. Well, I mean, you can't say never ever again, but it de- definitely becomes less common. Mm-hmm. And more about just, like, some flashy thing that makes you want to turn the page. Um, was I reading that? Yeah. Okay. So, until you guys cover Captain America number 300, make mine, make ours Marvel. He's lowered his standards. Hey! <laughs> you know what happens in Captain America 300? Uh, you know, I read 297, 298, and 299, and not 300. The Red Skull dies. Yeah. And then Michael Kaiser comes out. A month later and buys his first Marvel comic. And the opening page is, the Red Skull is dead. And I said, who's the Red Skull? Interesting. Why is Captain America old? Yeah. I thought he wasn't. And then they fixed it all. Right. Anyway. 
I'd love to get to Captain America 300. That'd be fun. That, That'd take a long we, time. We're we're on our way. We are oh, on sure. Captain America. What is it? 57 right now? 56, 55, <laughs> something like that. I forget what. Uh, yeah. I mean, Captain America's not in it yet. No, but, no. But we're on that. Yeah, we're still on it. So, Bobby B, Don Heck, is that your next one? Uh, yes. Good. First of all, oh, gentlemen, he addresses us, which is fantastic. First of all, what an epic undertaking. And frankly, I had no idea how much I might enjoy approaching the early years of Marvel in this fashion. Slowly approaching all of these truths and tropes of the Marvel Universe that longtime fans take for granted is really interesting. Some of the stuff, like the early Thor comics, yeah. I read them for the first time Marvel Masterworks and was like, holy smokes, they're bad. Oh, well, yeah, kinda. Yeah. I think we're finally getting back into some good Thor, but there was definitely a low period there. I mean, the Marvel Masterworks volume started coming out around 1990 or so, 91, 92. So if you're... You know, an 80s kid having read Walt Simonson's run <laughs> of Thor. Yeah. And, you know, all the various Golden Age run, you know, the sort of like new Golden Age runs of Marvel comics that happened in the 80s. And then you get the stuff from the 60s. Some of it's 60s quirky and some of it's just not nearly the same kind of story. It started out okay. I remember by number two already being disappointed. Really liking the first, his first appearance. Number two being disappointed. Then Kirby you know, drops out fairly quickly and it gets real low. But now he's back and I'm starting to feel it again a little bit. A little bit. But it's been, an, you um, know, that's that's probably past the first volume of Marvel Masterworks. Yeah, where we are in our in our coverage is around 105, which y'all haven't heard yet. But um, I feel like Kirby is still... The thing that makes the Kirby run as good as it is, he has not stumbled upon that idea yet. I don't like the phrase he doesn't know what to do with the character because I feel like that's insulting to the creativity of the creator. But the things that he's going to do with the character are a lot more awesome than what he's even now what he's currently doing. But he sure knows how to draw him. Yeah. So that's helpful. By the way, the having to be worthy to lift the hammer of Thor is mentioned the very first time Don Blake turns into Thor. It's never just about strength. Go back and take a look at that journey into Mystery 83. Okay. I did... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to, but he may be referring to the inscription on the hammer, which reads, whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall receive the power of Thor, which says nothing about being able to lift the hammer, but it only says if you can hold it, then if you're worthy, then you'll receive the power of Thor. Yeah. And I wonder, can anybody lift a stick? Have we ever established that? Ah, that's a really good question. Because maybe that's what they're talking about. I feel like like, we've never seen anybody else lift the stick. Like anybody can lift the stick, but if you're worthy, then you can also tap it on the ground and turn to Thor. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. God, Odin really needs to spell this out a little better. Magic spell it out? He needs to like give us a few more words to understand what this whole worthy business is. Right. How does this work? How does this work, Odin? Odin, you know, give give us some rules here. How can you give your son's power to other people? That I have to wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that a thing that you can just give out? Isn't it part it, of is, him? Isn't that a thing? And in, in later Thor doesn't like. Yeah. Beta Ray the, Bill. The, the, yeah. Well, Beta Ray Bill. And also. Jane Foster. Thor stops being Don Blake. Jane Foster. Eric Masterson, maybe. And they're all doing it while Thor... Yeah, so, yeah, Eric Masterson. They're all doing it while Thor is standing there as Thor being Thor. 
mm-hmm. except for Eric Masterson, because I think Thor was missing at that point. But yeah, so it's just weird to me. Like, you know, my son's got a crazy art talent, and then like I can give this paintbrush to somebody else, and they can take that talent or share it or whatever. I'm really curious to know how those stories play out because I've I've read the retcon, and I remember when I read the retcon for the first time just a year or two ago, thinking, "Oh, okay, that's how that works." Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how that would work for other people to have Thor's powers. I've not read the Jane Foster Thor stuff from Jason Aaron because I'm a bad comics fan. But um, well, but I'm it's the curious. same idea. You mm-hmm. you pick up the hammer and you get Thor's powers. You turn to a Thorry person. And I wonder if by that time it's already been established it can happen, so maybe they don't explain the hows and But the then, lies. like, Captain America picks up Thor's hammer in one issue, and he doesn't turn into Captain Thor. So how's that work? And Superman picked up Thor's hammer in JLA Avengers, and he doesn't turn to Super Thor. So how's that work? You know? It's huh. just kind of inconsistent. Anyway, maybe they can pick it up, but they're not worthy of the power. Very curious. I don't know. Well, um, Bobby goes on to say, I don't know of anyone who has the reverence for Don Heck that Michael does. I always run into a lot of Heck haters. I'm not a huge fan, but I have a soft spot for him because of his early Avengers and Iron Man, which I think is like his best stuff. Yes. Like Avengers and Iron Man by Don Heck. That is the bee's knees of comics. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I don't think I ever cared about Don Heck before doing this show, but now I just like I enjoy the issues he's drawn. Some of them are Mm -hmm. better than others, but... Particularly his Iron Man work I like, and his early Ant-Man stuff was awesome. Maybe he has work in his later part of his career that just was not as well received. Possibly. But I like him. Mm -hmm. He says, frankly, there's nothing the heck does that Kirby doesn't do better. Well, Kirby does it different. And I like I've said before, I think some characters lend themselves better to certain artists than others. So like Mm -hmm. Kirby on Thor is fantastic. And maybe Don Heck on Thor. He did Thor for us a couple times. Wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, his women were better. But anyway. Speaking of women being better, there is a pinup that I'm trying to see who drew. Oh. There's a pinup of Pepper Potts uh-huh. in Tales of Suspense 55, which we're going to be recording about tonight. And you're going to hear our talk, you're going to hear our comments about it on that episode, but it's not signed. So I don't know who drew it. Oh, we can find out before we record, though. I know, I know places sure. we can go. But as far as drawing women, we're going to have things to say about that particular drawing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. So some of the really dumb stories I think are when it helps to remember that to a large extent, they were still thinking they were writing for kids yep. and they're trying to knock out product as fast as they can. For sure. I think both of those are very important things to remember. Mm-hmm. And that they didn't know that we would be talking about them later per right. se. Were they that important? They don't know. They're just making, trying to make, sell a magazine. Comics are a disposable art medium. Yeah. They they always have been. They're a disposable art medium. It's only in the, the digital age and the collector's market that you have. And I, granted, the digital age is decades old and the collector's market is decades older. But the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, comic books were a throwaway art that, medium. That is why there is a collectibles market. Right. Because nobody was collecting them. And so in today's world, when someone tells me they just bought an issue, how much do you think it's worth? I'm always like, if everybody else throws theirs away, it's worth a lot. But sadly, right. they're all putting them in bags and boards and not throwing them away. So probably nothing. Like, my daughter has a bunch of New 52 number ones. Mm-hmm. And she's very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And I smile and nod when she says that because I'm honestly not sure that they're ever going to be worth any kind of money. No. Even comics like 
when I was growing up, the, that whole image in Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and the variant cover flash, where for a little while some of those covers were going for mad money, I think all that's died down too. And you could probably find those same covers on eBay for five bucks, you know? I mean, other than the, you know, stuff that's intended to be rare, mm-hmm. that's intentional, like incentive covers and that sort of thing, I can't think of any like big money comic book in my collecting history except the walking dead one well like you know those platinum covers that todd mcfarland did for spider-man at one point they were worth a lot of money but i can't say they are now yeah uh anytime they would seal a comic book for a while it'd be worth money probably not anymore i don't know sometimes they they print something that they immediately retract and those can be worth something right but, They're like yeah. the, the, the oops issues. Yeah. But mostly, like you said, it's, it was disposable. So that's why it's worth something because everybody was throwing away their first appearance of Superman after they were done with it. So they were they were not intending these to be overanalyzed, you know. Right. And, and intending to hold up no. decades later. No. That's why it's fun. Regardless, I think the two of you do a fantastic job of appreciating the stories and the art on their own terms and still being able to step back and call a lame comic a lame comic. It cracks me up when you say things like, this is a dumb story. It's just like a Superman story. <laughs> I probably say that more than you do, but yes, sometimes I think he that. says he's personally not a DC fan at all. I recognize you guys are. Nobody's perfect. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I love Superman. Yeah, but there's a lot of crap Superman stories out there. Sure, sure. <laughs> Any character that's been around that long, there's going to be a lot of crap stories. But anyway, yeah. So thank you very much for that email, uh, Bobby. What's the next one you have? Uh, maybe this will be the last one we have for tonight. Let's and, and then we could do like the iTunes thing. And yeah, what do you think? Okay, so we'll end on sounds good. We'll end on John Morrissey again, I think, because we ended on him last time. Or no, we didn't. Oh, and this is our last email of 2018. Oh, okay, cool. Last email of the year, Mr. John Morrissey. Reactions to episode 38. Happy New Year, fellas! Thanks for another terrific episode. You are rapidly ca- <gasps> what? Oh wait, 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 wait. That's not the one that I have. Oh, what do you have? I have Tim Price owe the Tumblr. Um, okay, we'll do that one then. You sure? Yeah, because I don't think I have that. Go ahead. Okay, John will save you for next uh, next mailbag. Um, Tim Price owe the Tumblr. Gotcha. I remember the Tumblr very vaguely. I'm glad you figured out who you were thinking of. Great job. Well, well oh, because of the well, correction. That's how we ended the, the last mailbag. So that's a good way to end <laughs> this one. It's all full circle. Yeah. <laughs> And a good thing for Tumblr as well, dropping the E in his name to start that social media side. That's giving with the mm-hmm. times. Too bad that's not going to go anywhere much longer. Oh, I forgot to thank you guys for calling out the Hulk having three toes in Avengers 2. I happened to read that issue for the first time last year and my brain melted down. <laughs> they got letters. That was Kirby, right? Yeah. Yeah. So no excuses there. The, and I, I remember reading when I was reading the... Uh, the, the um, Letter columns, they got some letters for that stuff. Yeah. Anyways, I also could swear that later in the same issue, Hulk has four toes. Well, you know, he is a uh, transforming type character. He does. Maybe sometimes Maybe sometimes he transforms to a three-toed Hulk. But having heard the crazy from Hulk 1 through 6 in your show, having toes appear and disappear is nothing. Yeah. Maybe it was like um, a fake foot he was wearing. <laughs> fake foot over his real foot yeah. <laughs> which goes to Tim Price's next sentence I sympathize with that guy in Hulk 6 who freaked out at Hulk wearing a Hulk mask the Hulk right? of the Hulk yep yep 
That was funny. How did he, how did he even make it? That Anyways, <laughs> he says there's a lot of Hulk in that last paragraph. It's almost like falling into Smurf talk with Hulk. <laughs> Let's Hulk the Hulk who Hulk Hulks. <laughs> Let's have a Hulkity Hulk time. That reminds me of the Buffalo sentence. Have you heard this? No. Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Okay. Which is a completely logical sentence. It is oh. saying that Buffalo who are from Buffalo. Buffalo, Buffalo, right. That other Buffalo from Buffalo, Buffalo, as a verb meaning to bully or push around. Right. Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo. They also bully Buffalo from Buffalo. Wow. So you can have one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight Buffalo in a sentence, and it works. English, everybody. Yep. Can't do that so in Spanish. Should be capitalized if you want to be proper. Yeah. I don't think so. No. No. They have their own quirks, but yeah. You know what um, I've learned about Japanese? Hmm. Is that there are so many homonyms in Japanese, words that sound the same or look the same but mean completely different things, that puns are like so extensive and so huge, like much more so than in English. Wow. But anyways. I hear that's a hard language. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course they all are. Lots of great feedback for your show. It's awesome to hear from more of your fans. Thanks for sharing. And until the Hulk sees a podiatrist, make mine Hulk bill. <laughs> well, we might actually be going on forever if we wait for that. We'll see. <laughs> and we're going to end with an iTunes review because we love iTunes reviews. We don't go out asking for them a lot of time, but they make our day. And um, this one is from Tim Price. He says... You know, they don't show the entire title of these things, which annoys me to all get out. It's something about bridging the present to something. Okay. It gets cut off. Five stars. Do you like the MCU movies? So do Mike and John. But that's inspired them to go back to where it began. The original Marvel superhero comics from FF number one and read them all. They handle this ambitious project with joy, wit, and wisdom. Plus, they throw in special episodes for the MCU movies, tying it all together. Until Mike and John catch up to the present day, make mine, make ours marvel. You want to know what really inspired this podcast? Here's a little behind the scenes for you guys. Yeah. Um, John and I were talking like, oh, Star Trek is awesome. And then, of course, that always goes into, let's do a Star Trek podcast. And then we're like, yeah, but what about Star Wars? Oh, yeah, we should do a Star Wars podcast. Oh, what about Doctor Who? Ooh, and then that really morphed into one day, I guess we were just like high on life or something. And we were going to do like a Who Trek Wars podcast remember that um, yeah and it was going to just like cover everything somehow and we couldn't figure out how to get it to work and after like discussing it all day trying to come up with a way to make it work i think we were just like how about we just cover marvel from ff number one and we were both like yeah that's way easier and better and we've been doing yeah, it ever I, since <laughs> the one bit of that that i remember was that um we were going to do that podcast and i was like and you know what i'm going to do while we're doing that i'm going to read every marvel comic along the way and you're yeah. like, you know, that's so much easier. <laughs> it really was. Like, that is really easy. We could just read that and cover an issue and not worry about how to figure out books and comics and tie-ins and stuff. And honestly, for a while, I was thinking that when we got to November of 63, we could start up a Doctor Who podcast. But then I was thinking, I don't know how much I actually have to say mm -hmm. about Doctor Who. I know. It's kind of scary. I'm definitely like, not I an like authority. It. Yeah. You know what I might do? I might do a John Reed's comics and just like read the Doctor Who comics. 
Oh. Out loud. Well, that's another reason that I kind of balked at the idea because I've read Star Trek comics and I've read some Doctor Who comics and man, do I not want to talk about either one of those. <laughs> <laughs> they are yuck. I have not... Yeah, I've not read any of the TV comic Doctor Who stuff. I have read the Dalek stuff from that era. Mm, the books. And it's quirky but fun. Well, yeah. Read some of the comics about Grandpa Doctor and his two human grandchildren and then see if you want to keep talking about it. Are they John and Mary? I don't remember like their names. I just know that he's just like, hey, Grandpa's here. Let's go time travel. Okay. Right. That was kind of so weird. I'll, I'll be, uh, all that stuff is available online. So I'll be reading. Because um, actually, another peek behind the scenes, while we're doing this podcast, I am going through and rewatching Doctor Who and showing with my son, who is tolerating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going through. And of course, in the era that we're in right now, uh, Marco Polo is doing his thing. So, oh, see, you are actually rewatching. I'm just watching Doctor Who, and I've been doing it for what I see, what seems like. Four million years, and I'm still only on the second doctor because, yeah, you know, I have to take long breaks in between. So, yeah, I don't know if podcasting about him is a good idea for me, but maybe that would inspire me to actually do it, though. Well, I feel like if you can ever get past the reconstructions, you have a lot more success. That's my hope. My, my daughter said that she was actually enjoying old Doctor Who until we got to the three years of reconstruction episodes. Uh huh. That's where I'm and at. She she hated those. It's it's tough, and it killed all momentum. We finally got to sixth season, where you were mostly intact, and she didn't really want to keep watching. In fact, I think I've only seen one part of an episode of the Second Doctor that wasn't a recreation or a still, you know. Yeah, and that was actually kind of enjoyable. That 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 Patrick Troughton guy's sort of funny. Yeah, he's a fun guy. But anyway, and not in the mushroom kind of way. Not in the mushroom kind of way. All right, well, we are going to put a pin in the feedback. We are going to try to get back to it in about a month, so do please keep writing. There was there was a steady stream of emails coming out since the last feedback episode um, up until about the middle of January, and then it kind of died. So if you are writing emails and you feel inspired to write more emails, please do so. We will love talking about them and responding to them, and we'll start doing this as frequently as we're able to um, since – we kind of have an idea of how long it takes to go through emails now. Sounds like they were writing during Christmas and New Year's break. <laughs> and then it's like, back to work. Yeah, back to work. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else before we close out? Where can they find you on the internet, Mike? Oh, they can find me um, just at Make Ours Marvel. I don't really do anything else yet. Uh, yeah. MakeOursMarvel.com. And I say that same speech all the time. So you can just, you know, find all our stuff there and write us there. Um, I'm on Twitter at John Reads Comics. Uh, I also do all the pouches and Image Comics podcast, talking about all the basically the same project but solo about Image Comics. And oh my gosh, last night I sat down with Luke Giaconetti and we did our first discussion of Deathmate. Ah, I remember that kind of sorta. Yeah, I I went into this recording. We both went into this recording thinking, you know what, this is 30 minutes because three things happen in this comic book. Yeah, two hours later. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens. Well, we just we just like, you know, open up the throttle because we figure we have, you know, very little to say about the book itself. Let's just kind of let the conversation be more free flowing. And it freely flowed, all right. So that's that's coming up on episode twenty five of all the pouches 
You can follow that at Twitter at all the pouches. Um, if you like Japanese superheroes, Power Rangers, Super Sentai, Tokusatsu, you can follow the audio commentary podcast that I do with my son at Silly Sentai, um, which is the Twitter handle for Super Silly Sentai, where we are doing commentaries for every episode of the original Super Sentai series, He Meets a Sentai Go Ranger. So you can go follow that. And uh, yeah, we'll be back to do this in about a month. There's another episode on the feed right now you should go listen to. Um, it's episode 46, I think. Yep. So yeah. Thanks for all out. the letters, everybody. Thank you. Keep writing in, sending your emails and your iTunes reviews. We'll love you forever. Yeah.